Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you that you are moving, that you're bringing people to, to yourself, that you're waking us up as your church, as your body, that you haven't left us or forsaken us. Father, would you allow us to get a clearer view of heaven, a clearer view of eternity? Would you show us this morning what really matters in light of eternity? Holy Spirit, we know that you're our helper, our comforter, our teacher, so would you come and teach us? May our hearts be open in Jesus' name. Amen. When we get a clear view of heaven, this life becomes in focus. We really start to understand what our priorities are to be in this life when we start thinking about eternal life. Paul writes at the end of this chapter that the church of Thessalonica is his crown of rejoicing. And he is giving us an athletic illustration. Living in a time of the Olympic Games, to win the Olympic Games you would win the crown. And what Paul is saying, in presence of the Lord, in presence of, of all of eternity, you're going to be my crown. You're going to be my pride and joy. You're what really matters when it comes to eternity. When we think about what's going to matter in heaven, it's a pretty short list. It's our relationship with the Lord and it's people. It's loving people. It's investing in unbelievers and encouraging believers. What would be the equivalent of the crown of rejoicing in our culture and society? It's the Super Bowl ring. Apparently Tom Brady's got a lot of them. But if Tom Brady doesn't know Jesus as a savior, what good are those Super Bowl rings in eternal life, right? You can have lots of accomplishments in life, but if you don't know Christ, what are those going to mean in eternity. As believers, we can really invest ourselves in ways that aren't impacting eternity. John Piper gives this great message about going home to be with the Lord and showing God his seashell collection. Saying, God, I really devoted my time to collecting all of these seashells. I've been in my retirement years and been able to hit up all of these these beaches, and God, aren't you impressed with my seashell uh, collection. Now, is there anything wrong with collecting seashells? No. But what if that became your priority and passion in life, that that's all you thought about, that that's all you did, and you missed the, the bigger picture that God loves people, that God wants to use your life in the lives of others. It's like, man, I've, I've really missed it. Hopefully there's something that is stirring inside of us where we say, God, I want my life to count, By your grace and your mercy, would you use my life to impact eternity? Last week, we talked about a gospel movement, the power of the gospel, how the gospel came into Thessalonica and how we need the gospel to come into our cities throughout America. How did that go this week of praying for the lost and investing in the lost, reaching out to those that don't know Christ as their savior? Verse one of chapter two For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. Paul says, when we came to you, it wasn't in vain. Oftentimes, I am not aware of the God factor. From Acts chapter 17, it appears that Paul and Silas were only in Thessalonica for three weeks. 
It doesn't seem like that's enough time to plant a church. But yet God moved through the power of his spirit. The gospel went out. People got saved. A church was planted. There was lasting fruit. And Paul says it wasn't in vain. In verse 2, But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. They had been persecuted in Philippi prior to coming to Thessalonica and Paul says that didn't stop us from sharing the gospel. I bet the church there in Thessalonica was so glad that Paul was bold with the gospel, that Paul didn't hold back. Ultimately, this comes from the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit moving in Paul's life where he says, I'm not gonna shrink back with the message of Christ because this is God's testimony. This is the power of God unto salvation. God loves people, desires for them to be with him for all of eternity, so I'm gonna be bold in the gospel. May we be so resolute when there's opposition to the gospel, when there's opposition to the name of Christ, to say, no, I'm not going to shrink back. I'm going to be bold in the gospel. In verse 3, for our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. They challenged them in Thessalonica, but it came from a place of truth. It wasn't in error. It was in accordance with the gospel. That's what's so good about sharing the gospel is we know that we're sharing the truth. Also, there was no deceit in their message or uncleanness in their message. Paul wasn't trying to deceive or pull the wool over the eyes over those living in Thessalonica. In verse four, but as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. Approved by God. That's what really matters. As, as Paul is reminding them of how they came to Thessalonica, he's saying, we were approved by God. God is the one who entrusted us with the gospel. It really doesn't matter what we think about ourselves. We may commend ourselves as a servant of God. It doesn't matter what other people think about us. It really matters what what God's opinion is. And is God in a place where he's saying, I can approve what you're doing. And I've entrusted you with the gospel. I want to encourage you this morning, if you know Christ is your savior, you've been entrusted with the gospel. God delights in using us. In the book of Revelation, during the wrath of the lamb, the tribulation, God uses angels to proclaim the gospel. They're flying through the sky, declaring the gospel. Seems like a much more effective way to get the gospel out. God could send a few angels this morning, get everybody's attention, and the whole world knows the gospel. But instead, he wants to use us knuckleheads, right? He wants to use the weak and the foolish to confound the wise. He he delights in using us. The treasure has been put in earthen vessels, clay pots, you, you and me, where we get to reach out with the love of Jesus Christ and, and understanding, yeah, God has entrusted the gospel to me. And as Paul is serving, he's serving with the motivation of wanting to please God. And I think that's really important. When we think about investing in believers reaching out to unbelievers. We're not trying to please people. 
We're not trying to win fans or build a name for ourselves. We're simply wanting to please God. We're we're doing this out of obedience to the Lord. When we're in that place, if the love is not reciprocated, it's okay. Here I am loving believers, but I don't feel loved in return. That's okay. I'm doing this to, to please God. Here I am reaching out to unbelievers and I'm not seeing fruit. I feel rejected by them. That's okay. I'm desiring to please God. God knows our heart. He knows our motivation. Verse five, for neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness. God is witness. You ever had those conversations where they're, just seem to be a little bit too good to be true. It's like you are laying on the flattery a little bit too much here, right? Now there's a place for honest encouragement, but there are those times where someone's trying to get something from you, and so they're telling you, you are the best thing since sliced bread. You're like, come on, I I don't really think so. That can't be the case. And and Paul didn't come with flattering words. He, He wasn't using some type of backdoor deceptive method nor did he have the garment of covetousness Paul's not looking anything for he's not looking for anything from the church of Thessalonica there it was I got it out (laughs) we have to examine our hearts why am I serving these people do I love them do I love the Lord or Am I looking for something back from them? Is this how I get my identity? This is how I get my, my worth. Sometimes there's even the case where maybe I'm looking for some type of financial gain, some type of possessions out, out of this. I, I'm bringing the gospel, but I want, want money from this. Paul's saying, no, that, that's not my heart. I never came to you with the motivation of, covetousness and he knows that God is his witness that God is is watching nor did we seek glory from men either from you or from others when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ Paul was not seeking glory from men the Pharisees lived for this the scribes and the Pharisees in the gospels where they longed to be praised by men and the praise of humanity really can be a powerful motivation where we say I want people to notice I want to I want to be recognized I want their endorsement if you would the problem if we're trying to please people is it's a really hard target to hit it's terrible bondage to live under because someday you may be really appreciated by people well just give it a few days people are fickle right And they're probably going to change their mind about you. And if we're all honest, we're not thinking about others a whole, whole lot. We're too busy thinking about ourselves. So we're going through our day. What does everybody think about me? And are they pleased with me? And they're just thinking about how to survive. They're thinking about how do I get my laundry done? How do I pay my bills? How do I get my my groceries? And by the way, this is what I want to do this afternoon. But we get in this little world where we, th- we think that people are thinking about us all the time. May God liberate us this morning to say, I just want to serve Christ. I want to be the bondservant of Christ. I, I'm not doing this to, to please people. 
I notice this a lot, and I've mentioned it before, but when I'm doing household chores, I'm really doing it to be recognized by the family. You know? If I unload the dishes and do the dishes, I want the whole family to notice. Ah, you know? If I fold laundry and put it away, ah, right? There's probably pretty rare times where I'm actually like doing the dishes for Jesus. Like, Jesus, I love you. I just want to serve you uh, this morning. I, I don't really care if anyone notices. Maybe God's called you to some type of, of service inside of the church and it's easy in the back of our minds to go, well, I'm waiting for someone to notice. And nobody's really noticed. Nobody's really appreciated what, what I've done. And it reveals that motivation of, of our hearts. So may God free us to where we get to serve the Lord and don't have to live under that burden of trying to have glory from men. Paul didn't use his authority as an apostle to make demands. He came as a servant. Verse 7, but we were gentle among you, just as nursing mother cherishes her own children. Gives us this illustration of a mom nursing her, her child, and he approached the Thessalonians with gentleness. So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. Gentleness goes such a long way, and a mom really exemplifies that. And the way that a mom is gentle with an infant and cherishes that, that infant. There's really nothing like it. Moms are awesome, right? And Paul says this was the way that he approached Thessalonica as unbelievers and new believers with gentleness. Could this be the method in which God would want to reach people today? Are we desiring to see people be reached and come into the kingdom? And God is wanting us to approach them with gentleness. You can have a lot of really difficult conversations with gentleness. The Proverbs tells us that a soft answer turns away wrath. Especially with unbelievers, when we don't approach them with gentleness, it's a pretty quick turn off, isn't it? It's a pretty quick, like, I don't want to reason with you. I don't want to stop and consider who this Jesus is. Jesus described himself in Matthew 11 as saying, I'm gentle and lowly in heart. It's the only autobiographical statement that we have of Jesus. It's the only time he described himself. And he says, I'm lowly and I'm gentle. Humility, approachable and gentle. Jesus was firm. He was strong. He never compromised truth, but he was able to do it in gentleness. That's why the kids love to come and hang out with Jesus. Parents bringing their kids to Jesus. Wouldn't you want to bring your kids to Jesus? <laughs> The disciples are like, no, get those kids away from Christ. He's too busy for the kids. And Jesus says, no, let the little children come to me because he was gentle. He, he was kind. The woman caught in adultery that's brought to Jesus, Jesus dealt with her in gentleness. 
Who is without sin? Let him cast the, the first stone. Go your way and sin no more. Grace and truth. Jesus was firm with the disciples many times, but he was also gentle. He, he was kind. He was patient, long-suffering with the disciples. We think about the kind of gentleness in which God treats us. He's way more gentle with me than I am with others. Where does this kind of gentleness come from? It comes from abiding in Jesus. We can't do this apart from being connected with Jesus. But as we're connected with Jesus and the power of the Spirit is moving through our lives to come in with gentleness into people's lives. Now, please don't misunderstand this. I think when we hear gentleness, we think weakness. Jesus was not weak. The Apostle Paul was, was not weak. These men were strong and they were firm on truth, but they were filled with the love of God that then resulted in a, a gentleness, resulted in a kindness. What if the body of Christ as a whole was known for godly gentleness? How would that be attractive to a world that, that doesn't know Jesus? Paul also says that he entrusted his very lives to them, and this is the journey of sharing and walking with someone in the gospel. It's not just an arm's length relationship, but we get involved in their lives. Jesus was in the lives of people, in the lives of the disciples, in the lives of others. He spends time with people. Isn't it amazing when we read the gospels that we have much more account of Jesus hanging out with people than him doing public teaching? The public teachings that we have of Christ are relatively short. A lot shorter than this message this morning. But all of the interactions that Jesus had with people, man, the gospels are just filled with it. He, he entrusted his very life. And that's where the love of God compels us to say, man, I want to get into the life of an unbeliever. I want to get into the life of a new believer. I'm going to walk alongside of them the way that Jesus walked alongside of, of the disciples. In verse nine, for you remember, brethren, our labor and toil, for our laboring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, we preach to you the gospel of God. Paul's mode of operation as he would come into these new cities is he would work with his hands, he would labor building tents so that he wouldn't be a financial burden to those that he was serving. I think we do need to hear this this morning. If we say, God, I want you to use my life, I want to invest in unbelievers and encourage believers, it's going to cost you something. It's not going to be easy. There's labor and there's, there's toil that comes with the crown of rejoicing, but it's absolutely worth it. We go back to this football illustration, and these guys are willing to go battle it out on the field for the championship. How much more so saying, God, I want to labor in your field because it's worth it. It's worth it to see people come to know Christ as their Savior. Man, if you're laboring in God's field, if you're loving on people, I know it's exhausting at times, but don't give up. It's worth it. It's where God would have us. In verse 10, you are witness and God also how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believed. Paul walked in integrity before them. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children. Is Paul talking out of both sides of his mouth? We were gentle as a mom with her infant 
but also we were like a dad who charged, that instructed. There's times for both, isn't there? There's times for that, that gentleness and there's that time for that fatherly love that comes and, and challenges and exhorts and, and Paul was willing to, to give that as well. What we see here is, as Paul is caring, he's investing himself. The way that a mom would invest, the way that a dad would invest, this was a burden that God had placed in Paul's life. That you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. To, to see these new believers learn to walk, to learn to grow, and to bring God glory. Things shift in verse 13, and it's the church of Thessalonica's response to the word of God. For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is, in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. When they heard Paul's message, they go, this isn't from Paul, this is from God. And this is the truth, the, the word of God. They believed and the word of God was effective in their lives. Turn with me just a few pages over in your Bible to 2 Timothy 3 verse 16. Just a couple pages over. 2 Timothy 3 verse 16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. All scripture. Do you know what all means in the Greek? It means all. Crazy. All scripture. We're living in a time where the inspiration of scripture is being extremely tested. It's being tested by unbelievers. That's not new. But it's also being tested by believers, by the church. And Paul declares that all scripture is God-breathed. God inspired it. And it equips us for every good work. You lose a huge battle, maybe the most important thing in your life, if you stop believing that all of God's word is inspired. There are churches that are starting to teach that our view of scripture has evolved. That as we read scripture... We're changing our interpretation of Scripture on key sound doctrines. God has not changed his mind. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Culture does not define the Word of God. The Word of God is to change culture. Once we start to edit God's word and we go, you know, I really like this part. This part really encourages me. Mm, so good. But I don't really like this over here. 
This doesn't fit my, my preferences. This isn't called the I Bible. It's called the Holy Bible. It's, it's God's word. And the church of Thessalonica, these new believers, when they got saved, they understood this is the word of God. And they held to that, and the word of God was effective in their life. And the same is true for us. If you put God's word at its appropriate place as truth, this is from God, and we open it up and we understand this is different than other books, it's going to have power in your life. The truth is going to set you free. And you may be asking, well, how do I know this? That's a good question to ask. How do I know that the Bible is inspired? That it is separate from other books? One of the primary ways is fulfilled prophecy. The Bible is unique from other books where it predicts future events, which many have been fulfilled, and there will be future events that are still fulfilled. I was reading in Ezra chapter 1 this week. We just came out of that section of scripture with Ezra and Nehemiah. But in chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The Spirit of God stirred Cyprus, the king of Persia, to give a command for Judah to go back and rebuild the temple. But this is what stood out to me. According to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah. God had spoken to Jeremiah the prophet. It's written down in Jeremiah 29 that after 70 years of captivity, that they would come back and rebuild the temple. So God stirs the heart of this pagan king. God fulfilled his word. That's just one small example of fulfilled prophecy. Look specifically at the life of Christ, where he would be born, that he'd be born of a virgin, how he would die, his resurrection, all written down before it took place. Fulfilled prophecy shows us that the word of God is inspired. Let's go back to 1 Thessalonians. And look at verse 14. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea, in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from our own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans, who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophet and have persecuted us. And they do not please God, and on the contrary to all, and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved." So as also to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. What Paul's saying to the church of Thessalonica is welcome to the persecution club. You're following the example of the church in Judah. There were Jews who didn't know Christ as their savior, who saw Jesus as a threat to them and would persecute anyone who came to know Christ as their savior and gave Paul a lot of heat for going to the Gentiles. Didn't see God's heart for a non-Jewish world. The gospel's for all people, amen? There's no room for prejudice or racism inside of the gospel. Is there any people group or person that we've left out of the gospel? Where we've said, I'd love to see all of these people saved, but I don't have a heart for this group of people and God would want our heart to be for all of the nations. 
In verse 17, For we, brethren, have been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Paul says we've been taken away from you. We would love to spend more time with you. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. I wish we had a little bit more backstory on this. Paul's like, man, I want to get to you. I want to visit you. But when he would try to get to Thessalonica, Satan would hinder him. There is a spiritual battle in fighting in that spiritual realm. In verse 19, for what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ is coming? For you are our glory and our crown. So Paul has such a view of eternity, of heaven. He can picture the church of Thessalonica being around God's throne. And he says, that is my hope. That's my joy. That's my crown of rejoicing. That's my glory and my joy. It kept him moving. It kept him motivated. It kept him going to new cities to see lost people won, to see churches planted. It kept him praying for current churches, writing all of these letters. It's what motivated Paul and the decisions that he made to how he lived his life. Some of you may know Edena. Edena would always sit right here in this, this front row. You may notice that she hasn't been able to be here for quite some time. She developed dementia to the point where she couldn't come to church. And Edena used to come to all of the services. Wednesday night, Saturday night at 6, Sunday at 9 and 11. And bless her heart, she heard me teach the same message three times every weekend. It was to the point where she anticipated the jokes by the 11 o'clock service. And she would help me out. She would, she would laugh a little bit early to try to get the rest of y'all going. Right? Well, Edena recently went home to be with the Lord. And she would always worship without her shoes on, bare feet. Because she'd say, I'm on holy ground. She loved to bring cookies and make sure the worship team had plenty of sweets. Let them know that they were appreciated. You turn for Christ, comes to our church on Wednesday nights and Saturday nights. Guys seeking to get free from drug and alcohol addiction through Christ. They sit over here. Edena would always bring them cookies and give them cookies and just love on those men like they were her sons and, and grandsons. When we get home to be with the Lord, we're going to look for Edena. And Edena is our crown of rejoicing. She's our joy. All of us together, the family of God, we're, we're going to be looking for one another and go, oh man, I'm so glad that you're here. I'm so glad that I'm here. We made it. We're in eternal life. We're with the Lord, right? But inevitably, we're going to be looking around the throne room of God and there's going to be some people there that we love 
that aren't there. I guarantee when you get to heaven, if you're a parent and a grandparent, you're going to be looking for your kids. Did you make it? Did they make it? Are they here? Are they forever with the Lord? There's no more pain. There's no more suffering. We're not going to be worried about what our kids' GPA is. We're not going to be worried about their sports accomplishments. We're not going to be worried about all of the trivial things that consume us of this life, and those things have their place. But we're going to be like, did they know Jesus? Are they with me in in heaven? We're going to be looking for our mom. We're going to be looking for our dad, our our brothers, our our sisters, our our, our cousins. Did they make it? Are they here? Are Are they with Jesus? The list's going to go a little bit further and we're going to start looking for our neighbors. Man, I love and care for this neighbor I've been in relationship with a long time. And and did they know Jesus? Are they around the the throne room of God? You're going to be looking for those co-workers, those people that you've worked with for years. Man, did did they know Jesus? I got caught up into all this drama at work, but man, the thing that really mattered was, did Did they know Christ? Did they know him? That's going to be the crown of rejoicing. The Bible tells us that our tears are going to be wiped away. Why is there tears in heaven? Have you ever thought about that? There's no more pain. There's no more suffering. We're forever with the Lord. It's heavenly organic food where you don't have to count calories or carbs. Come on. Good stuff. But there's a moment there in heaven where there's tears or our tears have to be wiped away and they're no more. We do know for believers there's a loss of reward that's going to cause us to grieve. Man, there's an aspect of my life that I wasted. But I also do think there's going to be this moment of, of weeping over those that aren't in heaven. And thankfully, God wipes away that tear, comforts us. I don't think we'll live in that memory for all of eternity. How could it be heaven if that was the case? But there is that moment of reckoning. Oh, man, I wish that they would have been here. Now, this is the hard part. Is ultimately, we would want to be in a place where we loved them and we shared the gospel with them where we have peace of knowing, hey, it was their decision. I would long for my family to be with me here in heaven, but I did love them. Not perfectly, but I loved them, and I shared Jesus with them, and I shared the gospel with them, and they made a choice to reject Christ. I loved that neighbor. I shared the gospel with that neighbor, and they made a choice to reject Christ as their Savior, not I never love them enough to tell them the gospel. I never love them enough to care. For some of you, if you're at a place where you've opted out of serving God, you still love the Lord and are faithful to him, but you're like, you know what? I'm just not going to serve him. It's not worth the toil. It's not worth the labor. I'm going to take a little bit more of of a comfortable life. I'm looking for easy street. I'm not going to invest in believers. 
I'm not going to invest in, in unbelievers. But I encourage you this morning in light of eternity, would you re-up? Re-up this morning, right now. Say, Lord, I'm in. Because I realize when I get to heaven, all of this other stuff, it's not going to matter. But serving you, it's going to matter. Do you think Paul ever regretted going to Thessalonica? Do you, do you think he ever regretted going to these cities and proclaiming the name of Christ, even though he got imprisoned and he got beat up and went through all the suffering? No, he, he, he didn't regret it in light of eternity. It was hard, but it was, it was worthwhile. Maybe you're in a place where you're believing the lie that God can't use you. Uh, there's too much sin in my life. There's too many struggles in my life. I don't know enough of, about the Bible. I'm not the Apostle Paul. And Satan would love for you to believe that. God loves to use broken and real people. To share the gospel does not demand perfection. In fact, I think it's shared better in honesty and brokenness. Hey, if you got to know me, you'd know that I'm a sinner. Hey, you do know me, you know that I'm a sinner. But I gotta tell you, Jesus loves sinners. And he died on the cross for your sin and my sin. And if you trust him, he'll save you and you'll come into relationship with him. God wants to use you. So don't believe that lie. I don't know enough or I struggle too much. And put yourself in God's hands. God uses open and available people, not perfect people. Open and available to him. Are you discouraged? Maybe you're serving this, this morning, but you're discouraged. May God encourage your heart. May you see eternity. Because in light of eternity, we're not going to be going to the Lord and going, hey, God, check out my, my seashells. Hey, God, did you see my golf score? Woo! Check that out. I got a great golf score. Nothing wrong with golf. Nothing wrong with playing to win. But what if golf was your mission field? Golf takes a lot of stinking time. Like a game of 18 is like, this, this is forever, right? This is an aggravated walk where I got to go try to find this ball that I'm hitting all over the place. But you know what's good about golf? It's you get time. You get time, uninterrupted time. So use that to encourage believers. Encourage, use that time to be able to invest in an unbeliever. It's, it's perfect. So I don't want you to think that there's anything wrong with your hobbies and your pursuits if they're in the right place. And that might be the exact tool that God wants to use to reach unbelievers. I'm going to let you in on a secret, okay? Don't tell the 11 o'clock service. This is the key to the abundant life. Jesus said, I came to give you life and I came to give it to you abundantly. And Jesus gave his life away. He loved. He loved his father. He loved people because he could see the joy that was set before him. Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. What was that joy? Being reunited with his father? Absolutely but bringing us into relationship with our Father. When Jesus rose from the dead, he looked at Mary Magdalene. He said, go tell the disciples, I go to my Father and your Father. That was the joy to bring us into relationship with the Father. That, that's what he lived for. 
And we're going to find the joy of Christ in our lives as we take our eyes off of this world, we take our eyes off of ourselves, and we start loving people in Jesus' name. Loving unbelievers, loving believers, saying, God, I'm going to make it simple today. I want to serve you. I want to glorify you. And there's a real joy that comes with that. Would you stand with me and let's pray together. Jesus, we do thank you that you came to give us life, that you came to give it more abundantly. Lord, would you help us to see eternity and focus on the things that really matter? Would your grace and your favor be upon our lives that we could be used to reach unbelievers and encourage believers? May our life really count for eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.